Orange Card. I'm Erica Pischke filling in for Tyler Dudley this week as she is in Cleveland watching American football. Will is also away, so today we have Jared Bomba. How's everyone doing? And Aaron Fish. Hello. To work out what happened this week in soccer. First of all, how was your weeks? I had a pretty good week. I mean, yesterday I went to the SU football game. Obviously, we didn't get the results that we wanted to, but I got to sit in the coach's family box with my friend Tasha Babers, so that was a really awesome experience, something that I have never done before, obviously. I felt like I was like the poor folk in there, but it's all right. How was yours, Jared? I had quite an eventful Saturday. I woke up, I watched a bunch of soccer games through bleary eyes. That was great. Drank some coffee, and then uh, I went to pick up lead producer Peter Benson from a gun range and I got to shoot a couple handguns. It was pretty cool. I mean, I, I've shot a little before, but I'm gun? not. Yeah, it was wild. I shot a uh, Beretta 38, which I didn't I know that's know what, what that it was. Is. I don't know. Yeah. That no clue. Yeah, me neither. And then I got to shoot like a, a six shooter revolver type of thing. And he told me to do it with one hand like a cowboy. So that was pretty cool. And then I had a little McDonald's and then I went Healthy. ice skating. So I just did a bunch of things I'm pretty <laughs> mm-hmm. mediocre at, shooting guns, eating McDonald's, and ice skating. But it was, it was good. Yeah, it was right. good. Very eventful. Erica, what about you? Well, I covered the football game yesterday. So she did an amazing job, if I may add. <laughs> Thank you. It was my first one, so it was a bit of a challenge, but it was very exciting. So here are our main headlines for this week. The SU men opened their ACC account with a point away at Virginia, while the women had two 1-0 results this week. One loss to Colgate and a win against Harvard. Next, we'll be joined on the phone with Will to look at what happened on Tuesday as the U.S. men's national team limped to the tie against Honduras. As always, we'll wrap up the top 10 things that happened in world soccer this week. Finally, this week during stoppage time, Aaron will take us through a bit of sports psychology. Let's begin with our men. Syracuse men opened ACC play with a back-and-forth 2-2 draw against Virginia in Charlottesville. What were the key factors in this game? I think the most important thing that I noticed was fitness. SU had the better of the play early on, but after their first goal, I noticed that Virginia started to have the better of the play, and that continued into the first part of the second half. As a result, a lot of defensive running, the Orange think they got tired first, and it was during that period at the beginning of the second half that those legs started to show a little bit, and Virginia was able to score those two goals. It was very important that the Orange got tired because I think that's what really let the Cavaliers back into the game as they went up 2-1, only to have the Orange eventually equalize. But I think that fitness really showed as there were a lot of players cramping out there, and they were really evident in the goals that were scored. Just the intensity of the game alone. These teams know each other well. They play against each other every year. Conference games are the most important games on your schedule, and they don't like each other, and there's a lot on the line there, so they come out playing intensely. Yeah, and I think as a result, you see the best out of players, but also the worst out of players. You know, thinking about Johannes Peels late in the game, able to find a little space, plays a perfect through ball to Hagman, who gets the second goal for the Orange, but then you also, in overtime, see Peels losing his cool a little bit, getting a red card, and Opoku, who was one of the best players for Virginia, in a similar vein, after that second goal was scored by the Orange, he had had a great game on the pitch, but he also just let his mouth get away from him a little bit, and as a result, Virginia had to play a man down for about 20 minutes. So, with the fitness and the intensity of the game, you definitely see the very best out of players, but also, in trying times, you can see the worst. Uh, You mentioned fitness. How does this play a part in the game? I mean, fitness is obvious. You just, you have to be able 
to stay in shape and and play a full 90 minutes and I think that it showed they weren't able to chase down players and there were there were cramps on the field and Jared that's what you took away from the game was their fitness level was much lower than Virginia's I mean it was most obvious I think on Virginia's second goal Delamel was pressuring the ball player got away from him just a little bit and Hugo Delamel is a fast player and a very fit player but he just didn't have the legs to track him down and that was how Virginia was able to score their second goal but apart from that it also makes the little things harder when your legs just don't have the same pop in them it's harder to execute an L turn when you need to and your footwork just isn't as solid because you're trying to save that little bit of energy so it makes those really small technical moments that much harder which is part of why I was so impressed with Hagman's ability to score there late because he had done a ton of running throughout the rest of the match but his ability to kind of clear his head eye up a goalkeeper and dink it into the far corner to equalize it 2-2 I thought that was really impressive I think you're right and I think that mentally it's draining when you're tired you you know you're tired and your body just starts to diminish and you you really have to push through that in order to score so I think you're right I think that was super impressive that he was able to push through that mental fatigue and and score a goal well, and that mental fatigue is probably to what you can attribute the two red cards, certainly for peels. As much as your lungs may be burning, you get a little less oxygen to the brain, you're feeling all these emotions from conference play, it just gets away from you a little bit. So as much as it makes it hard to run, and it makes it hard to pass and trap a ball, it also makes it hard to make the right tactical decision, and it makes it hard to keep your emotions where they need to be and do what's best for your team. Following on that discussion, we talk a lot about the intensity of ACC play. Was that evident on Friday night? Well, most obviously the quality of the opponent went up. I think that Virginia was the best team that the Orange have played so far this year. And that's not surprising because coming into the season, SU was ranked 8th nationally. But they were 7th in the preseason poll for the ACC. Like, that's wild. I I think that stat is just wild. That just shows how strong the ACC is. To be fair, the national polls this early in the season are typically just a rehashing of the end of last year true and the conference polls typically are a little bit better a little bit more indicative of this year because the teams all know each other as we were saying so there is a little bit of movement at play there but that is crazy there's so much depth yeah it's got to be motivating to the orange as well that they were placed seventh if I'm the orange I'm mad that's where the saying that I love called prove people wrong really comes in I think that their coaches within the ACC think that they are seventh in the ACC. I take that and I say, uh, no. Well, on one <laughs> hand, one of the most accomplished soccer programs in the country, Duke, was ranked ninth in the ACC coming in this year. So it's not like they're in poor company that far down the totem pole. But you look at the national rankings and you say, okay, everybody in the country thinks that we're the eighth best team. Like, that's all well and good. But the teams that know you best expect you to struggle this year. And those are the teams that you're going to play your most important matches against, and you're going to get to play against every single one of them. And going off of conference, what we said earlier, these players, when they play against each other in conference, they know each other. They, every single year, they play each other. There's traditions that go into different games when you play against different matchups, and I think that conference really brings out a different side of teams. What do you think, Jared? There was a moment in that match, Kamal Miller gave up a penalty that Hilpert actually saved in the first half, But Miller kind of has his arms up, 
protesting. I don't think he had much of a right to a protest. I thought it was a penalty kick, but the player that he fouled just kind of comes by and swats at his arm, and to be honest with you, if I'm Kamal Miller there, I might just turn around and hammer him with my left fist. It gets but, chippy. And it is. It I does. mean, You know full well that they know each other's names, they know they're each other's games. And that's the fun part about conference, though. It really is. I mean, it, it's, it's intense. I know that when I was playing, those were the teams that I wanted to beat most. I knew all the players' names, and so beating those teams were the most satisfying things, but they were also the hardest games to win. I still remember certain players on different teams that I would want to kill them, and I know that sounds so bad, but when you get in that competitive nature, you just want to come out and just hit them because, one, if they're really good, you just want to make them... You don't want to hurt them, but in your mind you do want to hurt them. Yes, but you, you don't do. actually you want are. them to be hurt. But you know what I'm saying. The competitiveness of you comes out, and you really just – that's what conference is all about. I can probably name at least half of the roster of a couple rival teams, and that was from like four years ago. And it's <laughs> funny now, you know, after after the fact, you see them at you know charity events or anything, and you're like, hey, like, what's up? It's cordial, and you understand that – all that animosity was maybe a little bit misplaced. But on the other hand, you're like, wow, like I saw your character on the field. I know who your boys are, and I don't want anything to do with you. But it's crazy. Cause, but can you remember any of the non-conference, non-conference players that you played against, or is it mostly just conference? I don't want to walk right into your question here, but the answer to that is no, I can't. Yeah, I'm, re- I'm racking my brain. I don't think I can think of a name, maybe a face or two, but the conference games stick out. Yep. After the first conference test, what can we expect this coming week? Well, first and foremost, Johannes Peels got sent off. That's the third time in four games that the Orange have had a player sent off. So they won't have him on Tuesday against Oregon State. You can expect to not see him. You can, you'll can you be able to see him on the bench. But fortunately, that Tuesday game is not an ACC game. Oregon State is 2-3. and three. They have losses to Fairfield and American. I think that it's a bit of a trap game because it's not an ACC game, but I expect that the Orange will be able to come out and really take advantage of, of a winnable game there. And it might be strange to some that they're playing a non-conference game right after they started conference, but this is a weekend where Syracuse only had one game on Friday night. So if they didn't have this Tuesday game, they would go an entire week without playing a game. And I think that's why Coach scheduled a non-conference game for that Tuesday, and I think it will be a good little test for them. Right, because the next game that they'll play after that is Louisville on Friday going a whole week between conference matches. There's something to be said for rest, but there's also something to be said for having good form and keeping your momentum and staying match sharp. I think against Louisville on Friday, I expect them to get a win. It's their home conference opener, and they've gotten a taste of ACC play. Louisville, it's going to be tough for them to come up here and get a result. I think that this SU team is just hitting their stride. Now let's transition to SU women. They played two games this week, beginning with Colgate on Thursday, losing 1-0. to zero. They were heavy favorites to win that game. Jared, you were at that game. What do you think went wrong? The most obvious thing was that there was absolutely no energy in the team. Coming off a pair of 3-0 wins, you would have expected them to have a lot of confidence, a little swagger, but it didn't happen. There was just not a whole lot of intensity, and, and I understand how that can happen. Thursday game, at home, not that many people in the stands it can be difficult to really get going. And so they had a little going offensively. I noticed that their midfielders were always a little bit too far from their forwards, and as a result, they weren't able to get on the front foot. Not only were they unable to score, but it put a lot of pressure on their defense, and the defense eventually cracked. And you know what, Jared? Last week we talked about 
the two upcoming games for this weekend. And when we talked about it last week, we expected the harder game to be against Harvard. We didn't expect Colgate to come out and play the way that they did. And I think Syracuse was surprised about the way that they came out and played as well. So there's a lot that goes into it, but I think that Eva Gordon came into that game and I noticed that there was her, her leg was wrapped. And when I spoke to Coach Wedden the other day, he had said to me, yeah, she has a lingering quad injury and it's a day-to-day thing. And we were speaking earlier, Jared, and that's a big loss for them. And she didn't play in the game against Harvard either. She came on and I thought she did fine. I did notice that she didn't have her typical explosive pace. She was limping a little bit too. And it's interesting what that does because she plays as one of those wide mids wingbacks that Syracuse employs in their formation. And not having her out there is a problem because they have players that can fill the role, but it takes people out of position. You start sliding players around, and while there are good players to play there, it makes people a little bit uncomfortable. She's also a senior captain, and I think her leadership skills on the field really help out her team, so that's tough for them not to have that. Absolutely. The 3-5-2 formation is a constant for Coach Phil Wedden's strategy. Can you guys weigh in on the formation and how it may help or hurt them at times? We said this formation would work as long as they had the personnel, and I I really do think that they do have the personnel to play this formation. Like we've talked about time and time again, those outside midfielders really do their job, and that is the heart and soul of their team. Again, I spoke to Coach Wedden the other day, and he had a quote that I just thought was absolutely phenomenal. He basically told me that he fancies his outside midfielders over anyone in the country. And I think that's a very bold statement, but I think it also shows how much trust he has in his team. It's a bold statement, sure, but I don't know that I disagree. They're so fast. We've been talking about Gordon and O'Neal pretty much from day one. And on one hand, I said before, they have players to put out there, but not having Gordon and O'Neal kind of hold down those flank positions has been difficult. This formation is clearly about Coach Wedden trying to get his best players on the field at the same time. And it typically does that. But without Gordon, he's forced to against Harvard, play Sydney Brackett out on the, I believe it was the right flank, and she did the running. She did quite well, tracked back, took care of business, but she's the leading scorer for Syracuse. You can't have her standing 100 yards from the opponent's goal. I understand that he wants to get his best players out there. I thought she performed fine, but as I said earlier, there's a reason Leo Messi isn't a left back. He would be a world-class left back. I firmly believe that. But he doesn't play left back because he's better at something else. It's going to be a little bit of a challenge to figure out which players fit the best roles until Gordon does get back. Jared, Sidney Brackett did do a great job as an outside midfielder, but I totally see what you're saying in the sense that she is so useful up top. Her speed and just her runs that she makes to create space to get into are are great. And I think on the outside, you're right, she does have to track back and defend, and that kind of pulled her away from her natural place, which is right in front of the goal. Against Harvard, we saw her get forward towards the end of that game, and the energy she brought and the running she brought was just incredible. I know that, I don't believe it was Brackett, I think it was Hostage that chased that ball down, and ultimately it turned into an own goal for Harvard, but part of why they want to play that 3-5-2 is because it allows their strikers to press, it allows that team to really move up and just turn the screw on the other team. Eventually happened there, one bad bounce, an own goal, and that turns into a 1-0 win for the Orange. Aaron actually was the analyst for the ACC Network for this game. Aaron, what contributed to their success against Harvard? They came out hungry after their loss on Thursday, which is exactly what I expected. I'm sure you expected that as well, and that's exactly what 
uh, Coach Wedden expected. He said they needed to come back and prove themselves after that loss going into ACC play, especially in the second half. They came out, they had plenty of chances in the first half, but they came out in the second half ready to go, and they really looked good. The defensive pressure was definitely there, but I was really impressed by the way they played offensively. I'm sure that Coach Wedden will watch this film and just have a field day looking at all the moments they had offensively. A lot of times they would win the ball about 30 yards from their own goal, find a a target forward who would play back, and then they'd find a winger kind of flying past. A lot of really good service from Brackett, I noticed, in the first half. So a lot of really good moments, finding high ground, playing back, and then finding space on the wing is where they could get off some service. They didn't get any goals directly from it, but that's the variety of pressure that they were able to bring, and it was something that they didn't really achieve against Colgate. So I think that Coach Wedden will be really happy with the defense shutting down shop, but also with the way their midfield and forwards were able to work together and find gaps in that Harvard defense. Harvard had a bit of an unconventional setup. They had six in the midfield with a box in the middle, which is not something that you normally see. And Coach Wedden's strategy to break that was to possess, but at certain points they needed to pick their head up and see the open passes to get the ball through so that they can have scoring opportunities. And pushing the ball into the flanks and attacking that end line is exactly what they did. And they had nine corners, I believe, which is more than what they usually get. So they did a really good job of attacking that end line. The SU women will begin their ACC campaign on Friday against the visiting University of Miami Hurricanes. Given what you've seen in their out-of-conference games, how do you see them faring against Miami? Miami is 4-2 and two right now, but they haven't played the same type of opponents that SU has played thus far. They have somewhat of a soft schedule, as Jared referred to it. I, I felt like he was being a little bit harsh, but... It's really hard to test right now when they haven't played as many games to see really where they are at within ACC play. But I think it's going to be two evenly matched teams coming in, and it's going to set the tone off right away for what conference is going to be like. Speculating about how good Miami is might be just a bad idea. (laughs) But I do think it's an opportunity for Q's to take advantage of a vulnerable team, not to make light of an issue, but... I can't imagine that Miami is on their campus right now. I don't even know if the game will happen on Friday. But Hurricane Irma, and and we hope everyone is as safe as possible down in that neck of the woods, but it's not going to be a a Miami team that's fully focused on this game should they play it. By the time that game is played, the Hurricanes won't have played for 12 days. They've lost two of their last three games. I think it's an opportunity for this pressing formation to really take hold on home turf and just have Cuse roll to a victory in ACC play in their ACC opener. And when we talked about earlier with the men's team scheduling a non-conference game after they've already played a conference game, it's because you want to be able to keep that consistency of playing twice a week. And for Miami to have their last two games canceled and not even be able to play for 12 days, that's, that's pretty big. So I think you're right, Jared. I think this is going to be a vulnerable team under the circumstances. Well, and I wonder how much they've even been able to practice. So hopefully they're all safe. But again, I think this is an opportunity for Syracuse. That's everything SU related this week. After the break, we'll look at what went wrong for the U.S. national team. Welcome back. Now let's talk U.S. men's soccer. The U.S. came back to salvage a much-needed 1-1 tie against Honduras thanks to substitute Bobby Wood's 85th-minute equalizer. Why were they so poor? 
I'm going to take the popular opinion on this one, unlike Jared. I think they played so poorly. I honestly, watching the game, I don't even... I don't even know what they were doing. I guess I would argue that the only great moment of the game was the goal that they had towards the end of the game. It was a great free kick. It would have gone in if not for a great save by Luis Lopez. Matt Beasler chased down the rebound and got the ball back into play. Jordan Morris had an excellent flick on the header, and Bobby Wood was so composed to finish that goal. But, Jared, I would argue that that is the only only play in the entire game that they looked somewhat decent it sounds like i'm just going to be contrary here but i'm not back down i'm going to go ahead and say that that moment was just as ugly as the rest of the game that's what i'm going to say hey bobby wood's finish was very composed that's that's what i would argue he was he was great that finish was great so here's where i'll agree with you honduras was the better team for the majority of the second half and parts of the first half basically the back half of the first half But honestly, I think that's exactly what the game plan was for the U.S. going in. They went in there knowing that it was going to be ugly. I rant and rave all the time about what it's like going away in CONCACAF. But let me give you a couple examples of what that actually looks like. Recall in the first half, Christian Pulisic chases down a ball down in the corner, gets on the end line side of his defender who's trying to let it run out of bounds. Normally, a defender would just take a touch forward away from Pulisic and be out of trouble. Instead, he chooses to lower his shoulder and hammer Pulisic. Just, Pulisic goes sprawling out of bounds, the ball rolls out for a goal kick. That is not normal. That would have been a foul in most American football games. Example number two, Clint Dempsey takes a boot to the face, not unlike Sadio Mane's tackle on Ederson in the Liverpool-Manchester City game. It was given as a yellow card, but he almost snapped his neck. Example three, there, was at oh least two, there were at least two dives I can think of by Honduras in that game. So not only do they just take the outrageously aggressive defensive standpoint, but they also want to dive around on offense. And frankly, it's impossible to get a call anywhere in Central America. From okay. a strictly American point of view, it is brutal going there. Okay, you, you mentioned Pulisic. Pulisic also went 34 minutes without even attempting a pass from the 47th minute to the 81st minute. Ironically, I think that those were the 30 minutes where the U.S. really tried to pass the ball around. Honduras was the better team during that period, no questions asked. But that was the one moment where it looked like the USA tried to build the ball out of the back with their center backs. They also only had one forward pass completed into the box the entire game. Like, are you kidding me? Well, that's because they weren't trying to pass the ball around the front of the box. They were just playing around the midfield just enough that they could kick it long to somebody, hopefully go on a second ball, and maybe get service in from a flank. They were not aiming to be pretty. They were going to get their shins kicked in if they did. It was never going to work. There was no way that they could make this work by passing the ball around, compiling a bunch of passes in front, and then scoring a Barcelona-style goal. And that's what happened with the goal. It got a free kick after Pulisic won a set piece. All right, Jared... If I do recall, last week you went off about how much you hate the U.S. defense right now. How did you even feel about that goal then? The goal was a shambles. Yeah. Okay, it's you a straight think? run. Oh, somebody's agreeing with me now. Look, huh. they, look, they had their poor moments. It was a straight run to a straight ball, and Omar Gonzalez, who I actually rate pretty highly, looked so slow trying to run that ball down, it actually hurt me physically. Okay, how would you rate the U.S.'s overall performance? Give enough. It give it a grade. I would give. I would say enough. Give it a grade. B. <laughs> wow. Walking out of walking out of there with a point, they did enough. They had one objective: get a point. 
stay in contention and stay in go, control of their own I'm gonna destiny. I'm going to go with C's. C's get degrees, so... Well, and they did get their degree. You're absolutely <laughs> right. But honestly, the goal is exactly how you needed to score a goal against Honduras. Pulisic did just enough to win a set piece. Kellen Acosta has a moment of class when you need it, hits the ball off the bar. Beasler scrambles it down because that's what he does. And then Bobby Wood with a good moment, absolutely. That's what you need to do. You need to be hard-nosed, you need to scramble, and you need to have just enough talent and technical ability at the right time. Wrong. Oh! Wow, that's harsh. <laughs> that's harsh. All right. Well, Will is now going to join us from Cleveland to talk about what this result means for the U.S. and their chances of qualifying for the World Cup. Hi, everyone. How's it going? Great, Will. I just have a couple of questions for you. Forget how the team played on Tuesday night. Is the one-to-one tie against Honduras a good result for the U.S.? Yes. I think that if they win their next two matches, they, they go to the World Cup. And, and that's what their goal was to set out to be. You know, that's, that's the job for Bruce Arena and his team. They need to go and play Panama in Orlando, and they need to get the win. Because if they lose that match, they have absolutely no control to qualify, and they do not control their own destiny. And that's they have to keep controlling their destiny. That's why they have to get the three points when they play next month. Speaking of next month, do you expect them to get the job done in early October and qualify for the World Cup? I expect the U.S. to qualify. I expect that the U.S. will be on the plane to Russia. And you know what? I expect them to do it without having to worry about the second match. I think that the U.S. will regroup next month. They'll take what worked from both of those games. It might not have been to It wasn't a victory in either game, but I think that there are positives that they can take. And I think that Bruce Arena is going to use what he can and what he has at his disposal and find out how to get the win. Thanks for chiming in here, Will. Have a safe trip back from Cleveland, and we will see you when you get back. Thanks for having me on. See you later. Aaron, Jared, let's pretend that the U.S. does manage to qualify for the World Cup. What does the tumultuous qualifying campaign say about the chances in Russia? Well, I mean, obviously, the way that they've been playing isn't a good sign, despite what Jared's saying. They've been playing poorly, especially defensively, and that's never a good thing heading into a World Cup year. You're right. They have issues they need to fix, but I bring to mind Mexico in 2014. They needed the play-in game to get to that World Cup. They eventually made it out of the group stage and probably should have made it into the final eight. The the game they lost to the Netherlands was the No Era Penal game where Arjen Robin dove. I can see senior producer Jose Cuevas shaking his head in anger at that memory. <laughs> so it's not something they want to do. They don't want to have to go to the play-in game, and this form isn't good. But they've got time to right the ship, and I think they can you know, perform well in Russia. Should the U.S. finish fourth in the hex, they will play a home and away series against the fifth-place team from Asia in early November. Syria and Australia will play two games in early October to determine the Asian representative in that playoff. Either opponent would produce an interesting matchup for the U.S. As always, we now move on to our top 10 things you need to know about world soccer. The return of European club soccer means we have a lot to get to. Before we talk about actual soccer that was played, let's discuss a big bit of news. The English Premier League announced that they will close their transfer window earlier in 2018 to line up with the beginning of the season. They are currently the only European league to agree to this timing change. Jared, what will this mean for the EPL? Well, basically it means that the teams in the EPL are going to stop doing business earlier than every other team 
in Europe or anywhere. I don't think this is a good thing, to be honest with you. How much business happens in the last three weeks of the transfer window? And if the English Premier League clubs just aren't going to be involved in that, I can't imagine it's going to attract more good players to the league. I mean, if anything, it means that fewer talented players are going to come and that fewer teams are going to be willing to do business with them late in the transfer window because they'll be unable to do business later in the transfer window. As far as players going from one Premier League club to another, it won't really matter. But as far as clubs going from anywhere else and trying to get into the Prem, it's going to be a huge thing. And I can't see other teams agreeing to this or other leagues agreeing to this in the future. I just don't see how it's helping them, other than the fact that they'll have a little more time to gel before the season starts. Previously undefeated Liverpool were destroyed 5-0 to by Manchester City in the Premier League. Goals from Aguero... Jesus and Sané were overshadowed by a gruesome Mané kick to City goalkeeper Ederson's head. The game was stopped for around nine minutes while the Brazilian keeper was tended to. Arsenal rebounded after their embarrassing defeat to Liverpool two weeks ago to easily dispatch of Bournemouth 3-0. Two goals from out-of-favor Danny Welbeck and one from previously benched Lacazette ensured an easy win and some relief for under-pressure manager Arsene Wenger. Stoke ended Manchester United's perfect start to the season in a back-and-forth 2-2 tie. Young striker Marcus Bashford played hero and villain as he was responsible for the first of Stoke striker Chupo Moting's two goals but managed to redeem himself with a goal of his own. New striker Lukaku added the other one. Barcelona maintained their 100% start to their league campaign. The La Liga leaders walloped Espanyol 5-0 in the Catalan Derby. Lionel Messi scored his 28th league hat-trick. P.K. and Suarez added the other two goals. The La Liga hat-trick leader, Cristiano Ronaldo, meanwhile is sorely missed by his team. Real Madrid limped to a 1-1 draw against Levante while missing the suspended Portuguese striker. PSG continued their dominance over their Ligue 1 rivals with a 5-1 demolition of Mets. Their new signing, Kylian Mbappe, scored on his debut for the club as PSG took a commanding early hold on the top of the table with a 10-better goal differential than any other club and a maximum 15 points from five games. FIFA have ruled that a World Cup qualifier between Senegal and South Africa be replayed after the official was banned for life for match manipulation. The controversy was centered around a handball that video shows should not have been called. Eight of the 32 slots for the 2018 World Cup had been filled with two games left in most confederations, Saudi Arabia, Japan, Korea Republic, Iran, Belgium, Mexico, Brazil, have all navigated their qualifying campaigns. Russia have also guaranteed a spot due to them hosting the tournament. In other qualification news, Syria are four games away from qualifying for their first World Cup. For a bonus this week, we have our resident Brazilian, Rafael Freitas. Welcome, Rafael. Thanks, Erica. I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk everything Comebol World Cup qualifiers. First off, let's talk about your home country. Sure. They've already qualified for the World Cup and are 10 points clear at the top of the table. How come they've been so good? Well, Erica, I have to tell you that absolutely no one would predict this back in June of 2016. Back then, Brazil was in sixth place in the qualifiers. People were very, very angry, including me. The press was considering the team missing the World Cup for the first time in the country's history. And then everything changed. They hired Chichi, or, or Tite, as you say here in America, and renowned expert in modern soccer and in strategic team formations, a guy who with good relationships with the players, 
uh, fixed the defense problem, put Neymar in the right spot, and took to Brazil to an impressive eight-game winning streak. 25 goals scored and only two suffered qualified the team to the World Cup in March. And I'll tell you right now, without being biased, uh, Brazil is the best team in the world, along with Germany. The rest of the table is a mess. Seven teams are fighting for three automatic places and one playoff spot. Can you sum up what's going on there? Sure, but first I want to explain how it works. Uh, in South America, there are 10 teams playing each other home and away since 2015. Uh, and the first four go directly to Russia. The fifth one goes to an intercontinental playoff. Right now, Brazil is first and qualified. Uruguay is in second. Colombia is in third. Peru is in fourth. Argentina is in fifth. And Chile is in sixth. Paraguay and Ecuador are a little behind, but still have some chances and so the last two rounds will be pretty much exciting. Argentina is the biggest name there. At the moment they're fifth and there's only two games left. Are they seriously at risk from not qualifying and players like Messi and Aguero not being in Russia next year? No, I have to say yes. Uh, they are in, in a deep crisis. They changed the coach in March. Uh, Jorge Sampaoli who is was pretty successful with Chile. They won the Copa America 2015. Uh, and he coached the first games, the two first games last week, a 0-0 tie against Uruguay, normal because big rivalry there in Uruguay, and a shocking 1-1 tie with Venezuela, who currently has nine points. Their offense simply doesn't work, um, only 16 goals in 16 matches. Uh, if it wasn't for Chile, who lost the two games, they would be in sixth. Messi doesn't play in the same level as in Barcelona, um, and they have tough games so if I would say if they could continue to play like this it would be a mess Thanks Rafa, we will be back after the break with stoppage time Now let's head into stoppage time as we talked about earlier, heading into the game yesterday, Syracuse women had to bounce back from a 1-0 loss at home against Colgate this week in stoppage time, analyst Aaron Fish is going to discuss the importance of the mental game. Thanks, Erica. The Orange are going into ACC play this week, and the ACC is one of the strongest conferences in women's soccer, and the Orange will most likely not win every single game. So that being said, last year the Orange went 1-7-2 in conference, and they need to be mentally prepared for this powerhouse conference. They need to stay strong mentally and be able to bounce back from these kind of losses like they did against Colgate in the win against Harvard. In soccer, there are four main components of the game. There's the technical, tactical, physical, and psychological. In my opinion, the most important component of the game is the mental, psychological part. I played for a club team, and one of my coaches, who still to this day is one of my dearest friends, and I've gone back and I've coached for him, uh, P.J. Mostaf is his name, and he's just a phenomenal coach. And he, I had to be 13, 14 years old. He brought along a sports psychologist to practice one, one training session. And I will never forget that training session because I learned so much about the game and about life. He taught us something that you can take away and you can apply it to anything you do. He basically told us that the only thing that you can control in the game of soccer, in the game of life, is ear. Your effort, your attitude, and your response. Those are the only things you can control. You cannot control the referee. 
You cannot control the other team. You can't even control your own teammates. You can't control your coach. You can't control how much he plays you. There's only so much that you can control, and that's your own effort, your own attitude, and how you respond to adversity. One way that I was able to respond to adversity is something that's kind of silly, but it's kind of fun. And I was speaking a little bit to the group about it uh, last week. And again, it's not just something you, you can need to use in soccer. You could use it in life as well. I always, when I was in high school and in college, I used to take a pen and on my index finger, I would draw a little D on the inside and I'd put a circle around it. And every time that I messed up in a game, I remember one specific part of a game where we were playing our biggest competition within our league and I missed a PK in the first five minutes of the game. And I could have walked away and hung my head, but I hit what I called the delete button with my thumb. And although although it's kind of a silly little mental thing, it reminds me to move on from what I just did, to move on from my mistake and not dwell on it. I, I remember my friends, all my guy friends in high school, they would just pick on me for it. But I didn't care because it really did help me personally. And as I've moved on through life, I've used it for multiple different things. If somebody's bugging me about something or somebody's really getting in my head, I just, I delete it and I move on. I've taught multiple freshmen coming in. I was a senior captain a couple years ago at LIU Brooklyn, and the girls on the team that were just coming in were always so nervous for games, and I would show them the delete button, and I would say, when you get out there, that's your opportunity to show. And if you dwell on a mistake that you made, you're not going to be able to prove yourself. So I think that for them, coming in and using the delete button, it's almost a little form of confidence, as silly as it is. Um, I've used it. I've coached my own modified girls soccer team, which is 7th and 8th grade girls, and they use it at every game. They would come out, they'd have their little pens, and they'd draw on their fingers. And it's like I said, as silly as it is, it really does help a lot of people, and I think that that's something that the Syracuse women's soccer team could use if they any any team really and any of you guys if you want to apply it to life I could go on and on about sports psychology because I really do feel that it's a very important part of the game well thanks Aaron that was really informative and definitely something we can all apply in everyday life that's all from us this week make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the orange card su thanks Jared thank you thanks Aaron thank you Erica And thanks to Will from Cleveland, as well as our senior producer, Jose Cuevas, and our lead producer, Peter Benson. Until next week.